1996, in the run-up to the presidential contest between Bill Clinton and Bob Dole, political science professor Jeffrey Isaac wrote this in his article, The Poverty of Progressivism, in Dissent Magazine. American democracy is at a watershed. The so-called social contract governing American politics since 1945 has broken down. Although the talk of a Republican revolution is surely hyperbolic, the conservative Republican agenda has significant political momentum, and it seeks to effect a serious transformation of the infrastructure of post-war liberal democracy, a drastic retrenchment of federal social policy, a reduction of the fiscal and policy resources of the federal government, and a devolution of political power to state and local governments. The conservative vision rests on a rhetoric of pseudo-democratic populism that counterposes a mythic America to an unsavory cast of characters variously called liberal elites. The Washington establishment and the counterculture, who are purported to rule America and to be responsible for the corruption of its economy and its soul, it is no exaggeration to say that this vision represents a repudiation of the spirit of progressive social reform that has prevailed in the United States for the past century. This assault on liberal politics is the surface expression of deeper difficulties confronting American liberal democracy. Our party system is in disrepute, and public faith in and engagement with the political system has plummeted. American political culture is fractured along racial lines and riven by culture wars that have badly damaged the social consensus which post-war liberalism rested, and these fractures have helped to fuel the emergence of a potent, if small, movement of right-wing extremists. Accompanying the growth of alienation and resentment is a breakdown of the conditions of economic growth that helped to sustain post-war liberalism. New forms of global investment have created a lean and mean economy in which relatively secure and high-paying employment increasingly has given way to insecure low-wage jobs. The real wage of the average American worker has stagnated, and inequalities in the distribution of income and wealth have grown. American liberalism, then, is politically adrift. To this incendiary article, fellow political science professor Jane Mansbridge replied, Look, folks, it's an election year. Now is the time to come to the aid of the Democratic Party. Yes, the old Democratic Party. And the presidential campaign. No matter what your level of cynicism about party politics, no matter your disagreements with the president's attempt to out-Republican the Republicans, you have to recognize that in 1996, the thing that will make the greatest difference to working people all over the United States is to elect a Democratic, rather than a Republican, president. Welcome back to the Ending the Myth podcast, where we are taking a stroll through American history with the help of Greg Grandin's book, The End of the Myth. And as two travelers struck with 
Valdinsomkeit are prone to do, we are on another detour. <laughs> this time to talk a little bit about the Progressive Era as a whole. <laughs> yeah, the Progressive Era is an important moment where American capital and then the American state evolve into their present form. A key conjuncture marking the transition from the older forms of capital accumulation that marked the 18th and 19th century to the imperialism and finance-based forms of capital accumulation that would dominate the modern era. But before we get into that, what was that shit you had me read at the top of the show? <laughs> that was that was kind of insane. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, things don't change, right? You know, uh, you imagine uh, you could replace 1996 in that conversation with 2000, 2004, 2008. 2012 2016 and finally 2020 right 2020 uh, i mean that literally sounded directly out of like a tweet in 2020 from a yeah, dumb you, operative you think the libs will change they will not <laughs> um yeah so basically in 1996 munya you don't remember this because i assume you were not born yet but <laughs> i was born i was one year old okay <laughs> Possibly less uh, established <laughs> for the record. <laughs> but uh, 1996 uh, was a shit election between Bill Clinton and Bob Dole. It had the lowest voter turnout of the post-war period. Oh, God. <laughs> um, literally during the election, Bob Dole would tell the press, uh, Bill Clinton just keeps outflanking me to the right and running on all my issues. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so this wow. is what we're talking about. Sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah. Two years prior was uh, Newt Gingrich's Republican Revolution and his contract with America, which is basically... I mean, you know, stop me if you've heard this before, but uh, the Democrats won the White House in 1992, seemingly had a mandate to do something about the worsening condition of American workers and people, and instead uh, just gave them austerity and <laughs> uh, wagged their finger at them a lot and a lot of race baiting uh, as mm. well. Uh, and so, of course, got crushed in the fucking midterms by the <laughs> Republicans uh, and then spent uh, basically six more years blaming the Republicans for, quote, not being able to do anything, meaning uh, just doing their agenda still. But, yeah, uh, right. you know, so during this time, there was like a real crisis in liberalism about the efficacy of liberalism, whether or not it could you know, continue into the future and caught up in this crisis. And, you know, this is what makes it important for what we're talking about today was the legacy of progressivism, the term progressive and its relationship to the progressive era. Uh, progressive being, of course, the most uh, abused and not understood in any way term and maybe all of American politics. Uh <laughs> Just uh, dog shit. Whenever people say it, you should just immediately turn your ears off. To I, re I remember someone, someone in my high school, uh, you know, made this. Um, I think it was like the song "Fancy" by Iggy Azalea, which was popular yes. at the time. Yes. And uh, uh, but she like changed it into like first things first. I'm progressive. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> <laughs> well, this was uh, honestly, you could take the lyrics of that song and just put it into this debate and it would have fit in <laughs> exactly perfectly. Um, so Jeffrey Isaac, who, by the way, I will say uh, 
you know, I'll, I'll post uh, in the notes, I'll post a link to this article and all its responses you can read. Uh, Jeffrey Isaac is right. <laughs> Let's put it that. Like, yeah. proven right by time. It was on point, you know? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. I was like, very on point analysis that is uh, shockingly relevant today. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and what Isaac is responding to is an article that was a cover piece for the New Republic the year prior uh, that was called For a New Nationalism, a Manifesto for America's Future. And in this article, the editors of the New Republic argue, quote, America today faces a situation roughly analogous to the one Roosevelt and the progressives faced. Workers are not threatening to man the barricades against capitalists, but society is divided into mutually hostile camps. The goal of a new nationalism today is to forestall these looming divisions in American society. And Isaac essentially argues that... uh, yeah, progressivism is about forestalling any sort of change <laughs> to the status quo, but that's also bad and tends to just move things to the right periodically. Um, but it's this interesting thing because historians really struggle, and I think by the time we get to the end of this, maybe we'll figure out why they struggle so much, but really struggle with what progressivism is. And to that point, historian Stephen Diner describes the progressive era like this, quote, corporate managers violently suppressed strikes. Millions of rural and urban workers lived in poverty. Lynching of African-Americans soared while white Southerners completed the segregation and disenfranchisement of black citizens. By no modern definition can these aspects of the period be called progressive. The progressive era was by and large ruled by elite interests that favored business over labor, whiteness over non-whiteness, the masculine over the feminine, the native over the other. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting. I mean, I think Diner sort of hits the point on the head, which is in a lot of these dumb arguments, he just simply points to the time period and just kind of puts his hands up in the air. (laughs) (laughs) he's like look look what they're doing yeah (laughs) you know but the problem is is that progressivism and the progressive era is the birth of modern american liberalism and almost all academics come out of a tradition and training of modern american liberalism and so in dealing with progressivism they're us sitting on freud's couch describing their mother (laughs) you know (laughs) completely incapable of honesty And story changes from week to week, emotion (laughs) to emotion. And because of that, through different periods, there's been these different attempts to kind of grapple with this time period. So immediately after the Second World War, uh, you know, historians were trying to deal with the failures of liberalism in the interwar years to stop fascism, uh, which made them especially cynical of progressivism. Uh, But it was all through this idea of like the failure of humankind generally right you know like progressivism couldn't be you know to the extent that they condemn progressivism is because of the evil within man mm. <laughs> not because of anything structural right Can so you, you get say this that sort they of couldn't really um imagine any alternatives to yes, progressivism <laughs> exactly <laughs> and you know i mean they just sort of have this veiled elitism right uh which is most on display in Richard Hofstadter's off-quoted essay, The Paranoid Style in American Politics, uh, which basically is summed up as the masses are inherent or the masses are inherently ignorant and therefore evil, 
and untrustworthy. And the real problem in American politics and the progressive era uh, was just too much Democratic input. <laughs> um, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Which, by the way, I'll point out, uh, after Trump got elected, there was at least 50 editorials of major American newspapers talking about how we should actually restrict the franchise. That's what that yeah, election Yeah, I remember was. that. We should like, <laughs> disenfranchise like people. <laughs> Huge amounts of people. <laughs> Only college-educated voters should or, yeah, should be able to allow to vote or whatever, although they're like already 80% of the voters. But, you know, I mean, it are the ones who elected Trump. But, yeah, I mean, this argument is still very much alive in today. Uh, but... Going into Vietnam and the rise of the new left, finally, and the rise of sort of, or not rise, but reemergence of Marxism and American political thought, finally, they were able to raise like structural critiques <laughs> of progressivism hmm. that were essentially the offshoot of the structural critiques of America made by the civil rights movement and those that opposed the Vietnam War. And they essentially wrote the best histories of the progressive era, right? But once that background chatter changed, right? Once we didn't have a civil rights movement anymore, uh, because it succeeded, right? Mm. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> once we didn't have imperialist war anymore, uh, again, uh, they did you know, it. We the stopped the did We it. did it. We did it. <laughs> Complete. Uh, so wait, those new left historians, like when they they emerged, like that. This is like within like the late sixties, then, right? Yeah, we're talking like sixty. Five to about like the mid to late 70s right it's essentially yeah. uh when all the best histories of the time are written uh and that's because it was the one like 10 year period where you're allowed to acknowledge structural forces in american history um <laughs> but this, by the way that's also the re-emergence of uh like a critical history of reconstruction and things like that based off of Du Bois black reconstruction. Like you couldn't like seriously talk about black reconstruction until this time period again, wow. because this yeah. is like when you could finally talk about structural forces. Right. Um, and so the thing is that then as the Academy uh, runs all those people out of fucking jobs uh, and replaces them with the Pete Buttigieg's and Kamala Harris's of academic thought, uh, it just goes right back to, uh, maybe the progressive era is actually a triumphant narrative about liberalism, right? And I'll just point that most notable among these historians, and you know, fuck this guy. Call, I'm putting you on blast, sir. Let's go. Let's <laughs> uh, go. Robert Johnston in his awful book, The Radical Middle Class. Johnston has made himself what an awful a, title. Oh my god, and it's about Portland, so I mean, Ugh. just double Ugh. double hitter here, but uh, he sort of made himself the Martin Luther of this new progressivism. Uh, <laughs> actually, uh, progressivism is a triumph of liberalism, which I think we'll actually argue is true. Um, but yeah, he maybe not in the way that he intended, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I guess the difference is he thinks it's good. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> so Maybe what we should do is take a look back and look at how progressivism came about in order to get at its political character. So what is the origin of progressivism? Yeah, so I mean, progressivism, it comes out of three sort of threads coming together. Uh, the first is the rise of the corporation during the Gilded Age. And the key factor here is what we talked about with Richard White uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, which is the railroads, right? Yeah. 
the construction of the railroads required a corporate structure that heretofore hadn't been seen in American capitalism. These were large enterprises covering vast distances that involved negotiations between states and territories. So you'd not only have to negotiate from state to state, but with the federal government, you know, into territorial areas. Uh, also required uh, extremely elaborate um sort of offices for manipulating things like the stock market and stuff like that. <laughs> I mean, these were, that was not a normal thing in American capitalism prior to that. Normally, if you opened a business venture, like you just worried about like the widget or whatever you were making or, you know, how to like make your slaves work faster or whatever. Mm. You didn't have these more elaborate concerns of stock fraud as like a central part of your business. Right. right. Like, like actual like financial engineering, like having like sh different shell corporations to like, you know, like funnel the profits into or like contracting them or taking on debt from another company and like putting it on your stockholders and stuff or just exactly. issuing a special dividend and just like which is like the entire profits and then some of your company and exactly and i mean even in that description right so many things that you're describing literally are invented at the time like the railroad corporations essentially invent the shell corporation like yeah you know i mean <laughs> they invent corporate lobbying like they're the first people who essentially create corporate lobbying and have professional lobbyists who are going to the federal government and essentially like demanding money right so they create these intricate structures essentially uh to run the corporation and all of its various elements right now tied to that is they have to now staff that structure right and so mm. what you see is the rise of the internet's favorite group the professional managerial class. Oh, right? yeah, we, lo we love them, folks. So you need to create a professional sort of middle class to fill out all these little elements of, you know, jobs that are like fairly hyper specific and very importantly require both a middle class set of manners, right? So you can't just have uh, some rough hewn guy, you know, who's now dealing with all these politicians out of Harvard and Yale, right? Uh, you need to have somebody who has the appropriate manners to deal with yeah. these people, but yeah. also needs to have a middle class mindset, you know, <laughs> uh, needs to believe in capitalism, but more importantly, needs to know not to question it ever, right? The guardrails have to be up at all times. There'll be no strain from the lane essentially <laughs> and that requires a certain amount of indoctrination it requires a certain amount of professional training in fact you might say that's what professional training is it's teaching you not to color outside of the lines and to uh stick within very con you know conscript or proscripted doctrine right and there's a very important book at this time or that comes out in the late 60s called The Search for Order by a guy named Robert Wiebe. And it essentially draws this out. And he basically says, look, corporations need to create this managerial structure. But then that managerial sort of middle class took it became sentient at some point, you know, hmm. around 1900 ish, it became sentient and began to see itself as a class, not as a working class, as we'd see it in like a traditional Marxist sense, but saw itself essentially as a almost booster class for their particular skill set, right? And so you start to see things like membership in the American Medical Association go from 8400 
you know, members in 1900 to 70,000 in 1910 as a self-conscious entity, right? Uh, In 1880, there's 16 local bar associations across the country. By 1916, there's 48 state-level bars and 623 local bar associations. This is just like a rapid expansion then of the, you know, like American, like middle-class professional managerial class. Yeah, essentially, capitalism is like giving birth uh, through mud and shit to the Urukai, and the Urukai are becoming self <laughs> self aware <laughs> as the trolls that they are. <laughs> but, yeah, this is this monster being birthed. <laughs> so the creation of this professional managerial strata and the ideal that social structures could be managed scientifically led to the creation of non-governmental organizations, or as we say, NGOs, for the maintenance of capitalism. From trade groups like the National Association of Manufacturers, created in 1895, to civic advocacy organizations like the National Civic Foundation, created in 1900, to coalitions meant to represent the collective interests of capital, like the National Chamber of Commerce, created in 1912, to think tanks that meant to steer the American empire, like the Council of Foreign Relations, created in 1921. These groups took the management of society, something we might broadly describe as politics, outside of the realm of democratic input and put it into the hands of elite professionals. And that brings us to the sort of third stool of uh, the progressive era. And that is essentially the rise of the ministerial state as an ideal of progressivism. So mm-hmm. we've covered in this show that uh, elites in the United States have long hated the concept of democracy, <laughs> have hated the concept of democratic input. They've utilized it at times, but for the most part have sought to suppress it as much as possible. And what we're seeing here in the progressive era is essentially people directly saying, maybe we should run the state more like a corporation. Oh, I haven't heard that one before. I haven't ever heard someone said government should be run more like a business. Yeah. And the thing is, that is totally a a feature of the modern era. You would not have said this in the 19th century, right? This is an insane fucking view of the modern era. Yeah. And it's essentially these professional managers looking at, you know, how their corporation runs and saying, yeah, this is great. Everybody that's here is a professional who knows what they're doing and knows their place most importantly and has their place most importantly and that is how things should run so essentially the state increasingly takes on the form of the corporation things are taken out of the realm of the political machine and put into the realm of what we might consider a modern bureaucracy. Now, of course, this is all about degree, right? There was bureaucracy in the 19th century. There were political machines we'll talk about in the 20th century. But what we're seeing is a transition, right? We're seeing as a transition to America reach its highest form of being a democracy purely in appearance only and very essentially having absolutely zero democratic input. That's yeah. I mean, like that. That is so interesting. I think this is this is kind of what. Um, I mean, funny enough, right? I mean, we have our own opinions of like maybe the actual work itself, um, or the guy. But I mean, like this is kind of what like 
Adam Curtis was getting at in his like new documentary, wasn't it? Just like the, you know, the abandonment of like mass democracy in favor of like, you know, professionals managing society, not even trying to um, change it. So basically like, you know, the shift between democracy into this like undemocratic form of elite um, of elite management of the state. Yeah. And I think this is actually maybe the, the maybe a centerpiece of Curtis's like entire oeuvre, right? Cause essentially right. he is trying to look at and trying to analyze what replaces democratic input once we all realize it doesn't exist anymore, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, what do you do in a situation where, say, 80% of the American population would like the government to negotiate down prescription drug prices, yet you have zero political will? And it's very open, neither political party will execute this demand. In the 19th century, with enough political pressure, people could force the state into acting on things, right? It was difficult. And you certainly, you know, you only kind of did it in a ballot box, not really. But, you know, politicians would get scared enough that they would sometimes act. Um, where we've reached now the most pure form of the American state, where no matter what you want, <laughs> it has no bearing or input at all on uh, the sort of political outputs of society. There was actually the largest sort of meta study uh you know, of political opinion versus political action was taken about like five years ago. And they went all the way back to 1980 and they looked at opinion polls uh, that were done regionally and then broke them down by tax data for the regions and stuff like that. And essentially were able to kind of get a reasonable assumption on a huge number of issues of where wealthy people stood on it versus, you know, working class people, et cetera. Right. And then they compared it to, union positions versus lobby group positions and things like that right and then they looked at hundreds of bills passed by congress from <laughs> 1980 up to i think 2005 and what they found is uh there's literally no democratic input in the american system like they basically say that what the wealthy want is what politicians will pursue what corporate lobbyists want is what politicians will pursue to the extent that at the lower end that the working class ever achieves a political goal, something they want gets passed is purely appears to be purely coincidental in the data in that it's just that you wanted the same thing the wealthy wanted. Right. 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 It never goes the other direction, though. Yeah. It's, like yeah. The poor it's never something. countered to like, yeah, anything yeah. that has to do with like a class conflict, right, where the rich don't want it. But, um, you know, maybe the working class does. Yeah, and I just, you know, so I just want to make that point just because I think sometimes this comes off from the left. It's like, oh, we're just sore losers. We didn't get what we want. So therefore, there's no democratic input. Just to say that, uh, no, actually, like, scientifically, there's no democratic yeah. input in society, right? And so at the progressive era, you know, there was this idea, although never realized in America, that, uh, you know, there was supposed to be democratic input from people. And now, you know, who's, what people, what kind of input, et cetera, that's always been debated. But the idea was it, it was a democracy, some sort of actual form. And the progressive era, they basically are taking that out of people's hands. And they're using terms like corruption and, you know, the, the new obsession of fighting corruption to essentially do it, right? Um, the way that people actually were able to influence the political system, which is through political machines and stuff, that became corruption that had to be rooted out and replaced with prof with uh, professionalism, right? And during this time, you know, 
the the modern professional comes into being. So you see the rise of men like Elihu Root, Henry Cabot Lodge, Albert Beveridge, and even Woodrow Wilson, uh, you know, claiming the mantle of technocrat rather than party hack, right? Now, of course, this is all facade. All these men still relied on party bosses and local machines to get them into office. But the image, right, they're, they're trying to recreate an image that will eventually birth a reality. You know, as Marx says, you know, an idea can become material if you get enough people to believe in it and act on it, right? And this image of modern liberalism is set at the time. Society worked best when it was in the hands of, a disp- of dispassionate professionals rather than the unruly and unpredictable masses. Yeah, and Elihu Root came up several times in our discussion of imperialism during this period. What what's his whole deal? Yeah, it's so like Elihu Root, he's a he's a key figure in the administration of US imperialism, uh, the creation of a new state apparatus, and the need to use like reform and social liberalism to to win support for American empire, right? Um he essentially is a prototypical progressive of the era right now Elihu Root began his career as a corporate lawyer who had clients like JP Morgan and Andrew Carnegie among others uh hilariously his first big court case as early in his career he defends boss tweed in New York City against (laughs) uh and I believe a bribery scam um (laughs) You know, I mean, literally a lawyer for the most famous political machine, right? And I, I mean, this shows the degree to which, you know, some of this stuff is just kayfabe, right? But astonishing nonetheless, right? Um, later on, he, he serves as Secretary of War under Presidents McKinley and Roosevelt. Uh, he's largely an architect of the um, you know, Spanish-American War. Uh, he very specifically has direct influence and impact over the occupation of the philippines a disgusting fucking war crime that we described uh, last week he becomes a key player in reorganizing the military creating a centralized general staff a modern war college uh, he expanded professional training for overseas uh, actions and overseas diplomats uh, you know, as Secretary of State, he made the U.S. a key player in Latin America. Uh, he's the author, essentially, of the Roosevelt Corollary. Again, a thing we talked about last week. In 1912, he even wins the Nobel Prize for, quote, and this is from the Nobel Prize's website, quote, bringing about better understanding between the countries of North and South America. Wait, he won a Nobel Peace Prize? Uh, yeah, yeah, along with uh, uh, F.W. de Klerk, uh, you know, last president of apartheid South Africa, <laughs> Henry Kissinger, <laughs> President Obama in the middle Barack of a droning Obama. campaign where he gave a speech about how drone strikes actually are peace. Uh, <laughs> you know, time to give up on idols, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it's shit now and has always been shit. Um, but yeah, you know, Root would eventually leave the Taft administration to become a senator for New York. He hilariously then resigns after the ratification of the 17th Amendment uh, that made it to where senators now had to campaign and be elected on a general ballot rather than be appointed by the state <laughs> legislature. Again, awesome. One of, yeah, one of those things that people forgot existed, which was the like, sen- you didn't vote for your senator until basically like 1914. <laughs> <laughs> and. And again, I mean, this shows the inherent elitism that's at the core of progressivism and the liberal project, too, is that Root saw himself as like, 
no, like I am a professional technocrat. It would I would be debased by running for election. Right. You know, right. That would affect my, you know, dispassionate, you know, apolitical, you know, stance. Right. So he became also this key figure, and this is important, in recruiting academics into the service of empire, right? He used his membership in social clubs to bring together leaders of finance and government into contact with universities. Disciplines within the social sciences, especially the new field of political science, this is me pulling my collar, Mm. (laughs) (laughs) he linked them to government service. Academics from, you know, uh, Academics from this political science served in the Philippines and generally came to link their discipline to government service. An approach reinforced as Root helped raise funds from his Wall Street, uh, as Root helped raise funds from his Wall Street clients to set up the American Political Science Association. All right. So, by the way, the guy belongs in hell already for just this. I mean, just just like like just hit on top of hit number one on the billboard, like top, like, you know, like criminal. Like, I don't know. Like, this shit sucks, man. Yeah. This guy fucking blows. Um, Root served as the president of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, which he helped create from 1910 to 1925. All right. Remember, he was Andrew Carnegie's lawyer, like a corporate lawyer for Andrew Carnegie, and, you know, eventually found himself a close consul and friend of the man. And essentially, big, I mean, big time I emoji there, by the way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, he becomes, you know, an active member of the National Civic Federation, a pro-business organization we talked about earlier that pushed for democratic or I'm sorry, that pushed for domestic reform in American cities. And in 1921, uh, he was a key founding member of the Council on Foreign Relations, uh, which if you're unaware or have uh, never come into contact with this organization, is just a font of evil <laughs> just spouting over the nation. This, this man was snapping, like literally like rising grind in like the worst way possible, dude. Like every single day this man woke up and was like, how can I be more awful today? Yeah. Like, how can I just like make this country, this stupid country even worse? And it's great because... You're exactly right. I mean, as we read through his hits, you're like, wow, this guy is like at the center of many of the most evil things that happened <laughs> during this time period, uh, which I put the American Political Science Association at the top of that list. But <laughs> some of the most <laughs> evil things that happened in this time period. And yet nobody knows his name. Yeah. He's not talked about. And this is actually at the heart of progressivism and what would become liberalism, right? You are the faceless you know, cog in the machine that makes the machine run. Like you develop this mindset that this is no longer about me personally. This is about the functioning of the system as a whole. You become dedicated to the functioning of the status quo, constantly refining it and refining it, never realizing it's a fucking murder machine. (laughs) Like you're just building a better bomb. I mean, we got to, like, have a head-to-head competition with this guy and Robert Moses in terms of unelected, like, undemocratic, like, technocrats who, like, made, like, just conditions, like, just objectively worse. And, like, we have to live in their world now, you know? Like, it reminds me of a Robert Moses character. Yeah, and the thing is, is, you know, what Robert Moses was to New York, every city had these people. So, in Seattle, James Crichton, who was the representative from Queen Anne and the city council and then later became the health commissioner and was like a serving mayor briefly and things like that, a fill-in mayor briefly. 
he is this critical figure to Seattle. And again, a guy nobody's ever heard of, nobody would ever talk about, but he's the guy who essentially figured out how to do the regrade. He also is the guy who burned down what's called Shacktown, which is the largest oh, encampment yeah. of itinerant workers in Seattle. Burned it down multiple times at the behest of like the business community. You know, he's the one who uh, expelled uh, the poor from the city under the claim of tuberculosis control. Like he is this guy who really does like shape big parts of what Seattle would become. Uh, and you've never heard him. Right. Nope. And first that time is, I'm learning about him. Yeah. And that's the telltale mark of the progressive. <laughs> wow. So I wanted to read this quote from historian James Weinstein's book on the progressive era, the corporate ideal in the liberal state. The confusion over what liberalism means and who liberals are is deep seated in American society. In large part, this is because the change in the nature of liberalism from the individualism of laissez faire in the 19th century to the social control of corporate liberalism in the 20th century. Because the new liberalism of the progressive era put its emphasis on cooperation and social responsibility, as opposed to unrestrained, ruthless competition, so long associated with businessmen in the age of robber baron. Many believed then, and more believe now, that liberalism was, in its essence, anti-big business. Corporation leaders have encouraged this belief. False consciousness of the nature of American liberalism has been one of the most powerful ideological weapons that American capitalism has had in maintaining its hegemony. Yeah, I mean, progressivism's anti-big business image is largely attributable to the mythology created around figures like Teddy Roosevelt as the trust buster, right? Mm. And despite this reputation, you know, President Roosevelt was deeply sympathetic toward corporate interests, which makes sense. He's from a very wealthy, old money family in New York. <laughs> He's not uh, some upstart again, you know, uh, brought up from the streets. Um, in 1904, you know, in a 1904 address to Congress, he remarked, quote, great corporations are necessary and only men of great and singular mental power can manage such corporations successfully. And such men must have great rewards. Hmm. This was the philosophy by which Roosevelt most often ruled and led. Roosevelt's position was that in an age of international competition, large corporations were required to competitively marshal economic resources. The role of government was to manage the economic landscape in order to ensure best practices among these corporations. Roosevelt shied away from direct confrontation with business, preferring to negotiate in private as his patrician upbringing dictated. He saw the major contradiction in society as being between the growing labor movement and capital and not between monopoly control and democracy. The progressive era itself was defined by increasing monopolization. Between 1897 and 1904, over 4,000 companies were consolidated down into only 257 corporate firms. In 1904, the top 4% of American concerns produced 57% of total industrial output by value. Thousands of rail lines around the country consolidated into just a few large rail trusts. In Wisconsin, for instance, over 100 smaller rail lines were combined into just three corporations, which controlled more than 80% of the state's rail track by 1915. This shows this idea that uh, I think historians Gabriel Kolko and James Weinstein were the first to really like strongly put forward the idea that 
the progressive era is really defined by the capture of regulatory agencies by business and the state, right? So instead of the progressive era being defined by trust busting and the state regulating business, it's actually business capturing the state, right? And mm-hmm. and and I don't want to do the anarchist thing and portray like uh, there's the working class, the capitalist class, and then the state is some third party. Yeah, yeah. What's happening is, as Mark said, the state was always this you know dictatorship of capital. But it's now more for, firmly merging into this capital form that is the corporation, right? They're essentially becoming even less distinguishable by the day, right, between <laughs> each other. Kolko notes that what developed during the progressive era was, quote, what he called political capitalism, meaning, quote, the utilization of political outlets to attain conditions of stability, predictability, and security to attain rationalization in the economy, So in short, what looked like reform legislation was largely written by business elites in order to better manage capitalism. Weinstein takes this a step further and argues that the liberal veneer of these reforms actually helps to lend capitalism additional legitimacy by making it look as if these reforms aren't just handouts to business. Right. Yeah. And that, that, that all, that all makes sense. And it's a smart move by capital to do that. Um, Maybe we should give some examples of this. Oh, well, Munya, why don't you sit right back and hear a tale? Huh, a I'm tale ready. a tale of the Meat Inspection Act of 1906. This is probably the most famous reform of the progressive era because it has a certain cinematic quality and involves a very short book that you can force students to read in high school. At the turn of the century, you know, large American meat packing houses, which became collectively known as the Meat Trust, were <laughs> becoming increasingly <laughs> concerned about government inspection. They had acquiesced to federal inspection under the Meat Inspection Act of 1891 after Europe had placed an embargo on American meat exports. Now, various European states were again raising concerns about the low health standards of American meat. The problem was being exacerbated by the growing number of small packing houses that were cutting into the meat trust market share. The meager budget allocated for meat inspection meant that only the largest firms were subject to inspection, giving these smaller firms a competitive advantage of operating with far less sanitary conditions. Enter Upton Sinclair's 1906 novel, The Jungle. The Jungle is about the abuse and exploitation of immigrant meatpacking workers in Chicago. The book was a sensation at the time. This is why you still have to read it in high school. It sparked public outrage. And it gave the meat trust a the the oomph that it needed to push for a broader inspection law to push it through Congress. Now, this law gets introduced by Senator Albert Beveridge, friend of the show. <laughs> <laughs> and this new inspection bill, it didn't deal with any of the workers' issues raised by Sinclair, but instead focused on the concerns of the meat trust itself. Roosevelt, having been assured by the owners of the large packing houses that the abuses raised by Sinclair's work were pure fiction, labeled Sinclair as, quote, a hysterical, unbalanced, and untruthful. Looking back on the affair, Upton Sinclair ruefully wrote, quote, I am supposed to have helped clean up the yards and improve the country's meat supply, though that's mostly delusion. But nobody even pretends to believe that I improved the conditions of the stockyard workers. So with labor reform off the table, and it's important to know, uh, labor reform is the 
main issue of that book <laughs> seems like it i mean that's a, it's yeah. a pretty big thing to take off the table <laughs> yeah the, the book is not about the beat being weird guys the book is about the treatment <laughs> of the workers in the stockyards <laughs> but that just pushed off the table congress focused around two issues placing dates on canned meat and who would pay for the expanded inspections Beveridge argued, quote, an industry which is infinitely benefited by the government inspection ought to pay for it. And Representative James Wadsworth of the House disagreed, insisting, insisted on eliminating the mandatory canning dates, extending inspection only to meet for export and having the federal government pay for the inspection. Roosevelt, you know, he reacted you know, negatively initially to the bill as he did to any effort at regulating business. But after Wadsworth assured him that, you know, the Packers insisted on having a rigid inspection law passed, Roosevelt threw his weight behind the bill. It's okay. Capital wants this. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Which, by the way, is the whole story of Roosevelt's administration is that he broadly miscalculates the mood. And then somebody has to step in and be like, no, Capital actually wants this. And then he does a complete 180. And it's like, actually, this is the best <laughs> thing ever. One of the dumbest presidents, just intellectually <laughs> stupid. Of a lot of very stupid presidents. Yeah, um, it's saying a lot to yeah, say one yeah. of the dumbest from that pool of people. Yeah, absolute dog shit. The new act passed with Wadsworth's amendments. It more than tripled the budget for inspection, and as J.P. Morgan noted, gave American meat packers, quote, a government certificate for their goods. The bill also had the added benefit of forcing the smaller packing houses to scramble to meet the sanitary standards of the meat trust, forcing most of them out of the export market and others out of business entirely, restoring the market share of the meat trust, thus strengthening their monopoly. At the end of this whole affair, Upton Sinclair summed up the situation. Quote, the federal inspection of meat was historically established at the Packers' request. It is maintained and paid for by the people of the United States for the benefit of the Packers. Men wearing uniforms and brass buttons of the United States service are employed for the purpose of certifying to the nations of the civilized world that all the diseased and tainted meat which happens to come into existence in the United States of America is carefully sifted out and consumed by the American people themselves. So that was the Meat Inspection Act. <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, that is such a crazy story. Yeah, a little different than you're taught it in school, huh? <laughs> a little bit. I mean, yeah, yeah. It, but it, it, it really, I think, goes to show, too, just like how much like how easy it is to co-opt just like ideas and like get the wrong conclusion from it purposefully right like mm -hmm. not even in a bumbling way but in a very deliberate way where you can like even you know co-op like various stuff that is seems to be very obtuse and direct i think a less consequential thing is just like people's interpretation of um maybe more like very overt you know popular culture that like is a critique of capitalism where they'd be like damn they're like this shit's crazy that I, I i love this game you know or like just like getting a complete like wrong you know yeah <laughs> conclusion yeah. out of it um i think like in a more purposeful way the state will can just like co-op like seemingly like very like sharp critiques of like working conditions into something that actually then benefits capital while still like using that as the as the cause of spell i to you know go forward and you know push it yeah, I mean, the, the capitalist state is very good at turning opposition into its opposite, right? Yeah. You know, of taking, you know, what would be democratic pressures, meaning, you know, people being upset, outraged, whatever, 
and turning it into the further benefit of the capitalist class. And, you know, quite frankly, the liberal and progressive project is to do that. Like that's yeah. that's their function within society. It's, that seems like that's the point of liberal and, and, and like progressivism in general um, yeah. is to do that. And honestly, I mean, like if you want to connect it back to today, you can see um, a very notable version of this is you can make many examples but i think the uh, protest of two summers ago for uh, george floyd and you know protesting police brutality i think is like a very very good example of how uh, you can co-op genuine democratic outrage into actually exasperating the problem more by you know either giving the police more money giving them more body cams right like you know um giving them like more training, which means sending them to Israel and, you know, getting trained by the IDF. Um, All those things that are like, you know, the exact opposite of what are actually being uh, demanded and, you know, still under the guise of helping and caving to demands while doing the exact opposite. Yeah. And I think, you know, uh, there's a very good uh, critique of professionalism that would argue that giving people more training actually only exacerbates the problem because the training itself is training you and how to maintain the status quo essentially to right. to to exacerbate the problem essentially right, right. now Budia, maybe you could give us another uh, wonderful example of reform in the era. Yeah, I don't want it to sound like we're just cherry picking things here no 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 i i, I have one i i came with one so um the Federal Reserve Act is another classic example of reform in the progressive era. Its impetus came from 40 years of severe economic instability, starting with the Panic of 1873. By the turn of the 20th century, banking and investment trade journals were already beginning to discuss the possibility of greater regulation and control of money markets and the money supply. This meant the creation of a central bank which had been considered anathema in American politics since Andrew Jackson disbanded the second bank of the United States in 1833. In 1912, members of the National Chamber of Commerce and the National Association of Credit Men began working through the National Citizens League for the promotion of sound banking to create a bill to regulate banking. This just kind of like, I mean, like, this kind of just sounds like a like multi-level marketing scam. Like, I don't know, like there's so many different, uh, you know, avenues and like places you have to kind of go through and buy into in order to actually get to the source of this. This is pretty funny. Yeah. And this is the hallmark of the progressive era, which by the way, is just continued into the modern era. I mean, when we talk about the progressive era, we're talking about the modern era. Yeah, it's a conti- is- yeah. This is the start of something that's continuing still. Yeah. It's the creation of these, what become essentially front groups to essentially enact federal policy now and in and also local policy state policy etc and what you eventually get is what we have as a situation now which is like that's the sole democratic input at this point is the creation of these groups which by the way you have to have shit tons of money and political influence already to create right so it's a a a just wonderful filter between you and and anything getting done (laughs) yeah so they um So they created the bill to regulate banking. The National Citizens League had been created the year prior to serve as a front group for banking interests that were worried that visible connection between New York banks and a banking reform bill would empower the largest banks, mainly in New York, at the expense of smaller state banks, could make the bill politically unpalatable. They even went so far as to base the organization out of Chicago and hire a professor from the University of Chicago to serve as head. Oh, University of Chicago, always the villain. 
never trust anybody from the University of Chicago. Awful. <laughs> this will well, be a yeah. theme in the 20th century. Yeah, listen, uh, <laughs> stay tuned, listener, if you want to really hear about the University of Chicago. Oh, boy, we're going to cover that. Don't worry about it. <laughs> For a year, the National Citizens League worked in secret to craft what would become the Federal Reserve Act, taking input solely from the industry that the bill was supposed to be regulating. When it came time to present the bill to congressional legislators in January of 1913, it had already been poured over and refined by the biggest banks in the country. Still, there was some contention over details like how much gold would be mandated to be held in the reserve, how many reserve regions would be created, and most importantly, how the seats on what would become the Federal Reserve Board would be appointed. Publicly, many individual bankers and trade groups claimed to oppose the bill, though historian Gabriel Kokel notes that this opposition, quote, was meant to serve as a useful political leverage and bluff to obtain concessions. Privately, bankers assured the National Citizens League and President Wilson of their support for the legislation. At the American Bankers Association convention in October of 1913, speakers rallied against the bill in an effort to squeeze additional concessions. One banker wired his senator to assure him that, quote, It is not true that the bankers are opposing legislation. On the contrary, they, themselves, have brought about the demand for currency reform, and there has been, as is now, a general apathy on the part of the public on this question. Still, some in the Senate panicked and began to mistake the kayfabe for reality. Several senators began to talk about their opposition to the bill in any form. The major banks had overreached and now were in danger of losing the very bill they wrote. <laughs> the National Citizens League joined with the National Chamber of Commerce and the National Association of Credit Men to mount a telegram campaign to convince the Senate to vote yes on the bill. We didn't mean it. We didn't mean yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> reassured by the banks themselves, the Senate acquies acquiesced. Reassured by the banks themselves, the Senate acquiesced, and the Federal Reserve Act was signed into law in December of 1913. Kokel summarizes the ordeal. The banking reform movement was initiated and sustained by big bankers seeking to offset, through political means, the diffusion and decentralization within banking. In 1895, the government went to Morgan for financial aid. But in 1907, Morgan came to the government. But in going to the government, banker reformers brought concrete plans and specific personnel. And given the pro-capitalist frame of reference of all of the major parties, it was the bankers who provided the legislative formulations of all significant bills. The Federal Reserve System, for the most part, stabilized the financial power of New York within the economy, reversing the longer-term trend towards decentralization by the utilization of political means of control over the central money market. Yeah, and so again, what we see here is what appears and sometimes appears in history books to be, oh, this is a, a huge political fight over, you know, the creation of a central bank and like Americans' inherent distrust of a central bank, blah, blah, blah. You know, it, it's essentially trying to recapitulate some form of Jacksonianism in yeah. the modern era. And the thing is, that's dead. That died in the Civil War. Nobody cares about any of that shit anymore. What you're seeing is just the little bit of infighting of capitalists negotiating between themselves. 
and hilariously losing themselves in the kayfabe sometimes because i mean senders are some of the dumbest people on earth and so they don't get the score right they're they're trying to act on the bank's behalf and be like no the, the bankers are against it so i'm against it now and the bank yeah. be like oh shit oh shit, shit we overplayed shit. no 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 <laughs> because we run the fucking government so like you know <laughs> they're gonna do everything we say you know it's a total um this is a total head fake but this is what happens also like i feel like sometimes especially on the left um especially like if you're if you know like us we're like really into marxist theory sometimes it can get hard to actually acknowledge the fact that you know within intra-capitalist um you know a capitalist state as well as just like you know capitalist in general and private enterprise um when the working class is solely beaten down there's no power there whatsoever um the fights just become amongst themselves in these squabbles but it's within the realm and terms of what capital dictates so all of these like you know fights and we can't even like see that uh later on too but this is like as we talked about with dr white a few episodes ago mm-hmm. you know after reconstruction american empire accelerated right like you know the expansion west was really consolidated because war is a capital intensifying endeavor right like once you go into war it is capital intensifying which means that there are exponential growth to be had uh later on right and so now we have these hardened warriors who are like you know, um completely able to overpower native americans and like expand west the corporation forms and expands greatly i mean the consolidation that we saw just within you know like the tw- early 20th century within just like a few years of like i mean like tens of thousands of companies going into just like a couple hundred corporations i mean that is like rapid exponential consolidation like within capital that i i don't think we have like ever seen but this is the path that america has been taken after a failed reconstruction a failed reconstruction cemented this idea of corporation um the the i guess the enfranchisement and then disenfranchisement of of freed people of former slaves, um, the nature of the family and the household and how the household is organized, not changing at all, and of course, like the beaten down labor strikes um, that we mm-hmm. saw in like the late nineteenth century, all coalesce into this just like dominant hegemonic like uh, capitalist infrastructure, which now um, is controlled just by the sole growth of constantly consolidating capital um i think that that is just like really fascinating you need a state to facilitate um that on a mass scale no longer can you just have like just elected you know senators presidents and you know Mm -hmm. elected representatives you need a whole professional system to manage that structure because it gets a little more um you know complex and the needs of them um grows in comparison to so where there's like no democratic input that's actually how all of these like you know chamber of commerce or like you know the league for for bimbo society or whatever you know it kind of <laughs> came in is like those were allowed to really form i think because of a lack because of the um dramatic victory of capital in the late 19th century and failed reconstruction in general too and you know exactly to what you're saying and i think there's this important sort of Marxist concept that's that you always have to keep in mind, which is the difference between appearance and essence, right? Yep. And this internecine battles between capital where they're just essentially arguing over board seats, right? 
sometimes you look at the fury over that uh, the sound and the fury of that and you mistake that for some larger conflict that's actually happening right, right you know right at, and you know oh maybe this is the the moment where things change right but if you look at board fights in major corporations you know as a ceo is getting forced out or something you know you can have very like pitched battles that are really gross and disgusting between board members and the corporation remains fundamentally unchanged at the end yep. because really yep. all they're fighting over is just their personal position within the structure they're not fighting over the structure itself right so you have the appearance of conflict and some sort of like dynamic input you know being put in uh, but the essence of dictatorship of capital and the federal reserve is such a good thing to end on because the federal reserve for a lot of reasons has really like become symbolized at least in my mind this idea of the conflict between appearance and essence right so you'll hear from american conspiracists this idea of oh the federal reserve is a private bank uh read secret jewish conspiracy right (laughs) it's what they really want to say you weren't allowed to say that after the holocaust (laughs) right yeah And they'll point out like, but look, like the banks choose, you know, you know, half the seats or whatever on the regional Federal Reserve, you know, boards. And it's like, yeah, that doesn't show that the bank is a private bank. That shows the way that the state and capital work in tandem, right? This is a story of regulatory capture and how the state actually functions in the real world, which is it is a dictatorship of whichever class is in charge, right? And so it's like, that doesn't require a conspiracy that requires understanding political economy, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, which exactly. is always sort of sorely lacking. So I think the key idea in understanding the actions of reformers, particularly middle class reformers, is this idea that we're both sort of hitting at here. And I think that you're hitting at when you're talking about the structure created around these large apparatuses is the idea of ideological hegemony right capitalist ideas were the hegemonic ideas of the day middle class reformers could not imagine a world outside of capitalism and therefore were incapable of proposing programs that offered significant transformative change to that system when workers appeared to rebel thus threatening the capitalist order the middle class dutifully flocked to the side of maintaining the social order This behavior was not always overt and mechanical, but frequently occurred organically, almost as reflex. Often it was more the result of the lack of a competing vision for organizing society than it was a conscious striving to maintain capitalism. It essentially becomes, through their training, reflex. And to go back to a figure we just talked about a little bit earlier from Seattle, James Crichton, this guy who was sort of the poster child of progressivism in the city come the 1919 general strike in seattle he's one of the ones screaming at the top of his lungs just execute the workers in the city (laughs) you know uh he basically goes on this whole big tirade late in his life about we've gone too far and being nice to the workers of the city we've given them too many good things that's why they're acting up and uh now it's time for a little bit of the boot right And this shows, I think, a critical thing, too, that we'll get into. There's a little foreshadowing. This is how liberals become fascists, by the way. 
you know and this is why it's a seamless transition for them into fascism it is not a conflict in their values but rather the natural progression of their values yes yes 100 percent um i think that liberalism and fascism usually is framed as two completely um separate ideologies that are in direct um contrast and conflict with each other however even just like the actual i mean you know Liberal liberalism and fascism are closely intertwined, and that might sound controversial, but actually, I think it is very reasonable, which we'll get into in later episodes. Um, I think also just with the grand narrative of um, the end of the myth by Greg Grandin, um, you know, I think that this is actually one of the central points um, that the book is kind of making. It's like you know this idea of you know we could either get into socialism or we get into barbarism, right? And socialism basically just meaning like, you know, more, you know, worker control at the very least, at least social democracy, right? But in general, like if we continue within capitalism, capitalism ultimately manifests fascism, just like from its actual mm-hmm. like forces and structures, like boom and bust periods, like make people even, even like, you know, within the ideas and like sentiments, even within people, who are just participating in the society, not even just like the, you know, the rulers of the society becoming fascist. I'm not even talking about just, you know, um, the general population, the people in the imperial core of the United States, um, you know, if they're under capitalism, which they are, um, their conditions within boom and bust cycles during the bust, their, um, you know, conditions get um, particularly worse, right? And um, because their standard of living keeps on going down, right? And, um, you know, there's a lot of... Uh, there's nothing that you can really do about that if you're operating within the capitalist framework. And so, you know, this liberalism that kind of pushes this like, you know, mirage almost will then read into uh, fascism because of just like, you know, increasing, increasingly low wages, like continually like, you know, quality of life declining. Um, and, you know, that is how fascism and the conditions of fascism have to arrive when there are actually social conditions laid down. And, capitalism is the actual avenue which is facilitated by liberalism right so liberal Mm -hmm. capitalism is actually the avenue to get to the conditions where fascism arises it doesn't arise out of nowhere um there have to be conditions laid in place and the conditions primarily are driven by liberal capitalism yeah and i think you know during the interwar period when people could see this a little more clearly than i think they could in retrospect uh it was very common to hear people on the left talk about fascism just being liberal capitalism in decay. And, yep. you know, yep. watch this space. We'll talk more on that later. <laughs> well, I think we'll leave people with these closing thoughts from historian James Weinstein on the nature of reform in the progressive era. In the current century, particularly on the federal level, few reforms were enacted without the tacit approval, if not the guidance, of the large corporate interests. And, much more important, businessmen were able to harness to their own ends the desire of intellectuals and middle-class reformers to bring together thoughtful men of all classes in a vanguard for the building of the good community. These ends were the stabilization, rationalization, and continued expansion of the existing political economy, and, subsumed under that, the circumscript of the socialist movement with its ill-formed but nevertheless dangerous ideas for an alternative form of social organization. In the absence of a revolutionary party with a comprehensive vision for a new one, all reformers, no matter how radical they thought themselves to be, could be and have been 
caught up in reform structures whose underlying purpose is to reduce the inharmonies of the existing social system. Either that, or has happened to some radicals more recently, they have been forced to abstain from the participation in the larger society to drop out and become truly irrelevant. All right, so we'll leave you guys at that, and we'll see you next week when we talk about the labor movement in this time period, (laughs) uh, as well as the state of civil rights. I think this might be um, presaging that that's not going to go well. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Spoiler alert. (laughs) Yeah. Spoiler alert. Socialism not achieved. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So we'll see you all next time. See you then. Dicen que siempre podrán saltar el muro por muy alto que sea. Ellos, junto a activistas, aseguran que la valla es el peor legado de la administración Trump y que no ha disminuido los cruces de ese Space, space, space.